across a contagious Christian that seems to have some sort of joy exuding from them, and you can't quite figure out why. Well, the book of Philippians is essentially a how-to guide on how to have a joyful Christian life. And I have suggested to you that there are four spiritual secrets to be found in the book of Philippians that we can practice to experience joyful Christianity. Remember, the book of Philippians mentions the mind over 20 times. And so this is a process in our mind that we cultivate, that God has given us a path that we cultivate as we uh, walk in this path. In chapter 1, we talked about the submissive mind, a mind that decides, excuse me, a single mind, the mind that decides to put everything on Jesus Christ, to make Him the basis, the foundation for their life, to focus on Him above all. The single mind uh, brings joy. Chapter 2, we talked about the submissive mind. If the first chapter dealt with God, the second dealt with relationships. That as we submit ourselves to one another, as Christ submitted himself to the Father, as Paul submitted himself to uh, his church, uh, then we will find joy as well because we have a submissive mind. Well, we're on our last chapter, excuse me, our last passage in Philippians 2. We've talked about Paul and his submissive mind to the church. We've talked about Jesus and his submissive mind to the Father. And now we're going to talk about two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus. You know, it's easy to sort of get wrapped around the fact that, well, Paul and Jesus, well, they're, you know, exalted. They're these type of people, but that kind of life isn't for normal people. And so we see a picture of normal guys, Timothy with a normal name, and Epaphroditus with a very strange name, uh, who decided to walk the same path of submission. So let's read this passage, and then we'll talk about it. That is, of course, if I can find this passage. This is Philippians 2, 19 through 30. Paul speaking to the Philippians in this letter. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who is genuinely concerned, genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The word of the Lord. I don't know if anybody has been watching the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament or not. This is one of my favorite times of the year. They hold the biggest tournament, uh, tennis tournament in America up in Flushing Meadows, New York. Uh, it's New York style with the planes flying out from LaGuardia, uh, people with uh, all sorts of ethnicities and languages cursing and shouting as they chase around a little yellow ball. 
Um, I myself, inspired by the play at the U.S. Open, decided to play a little bit myself this week. And I have to confess to you, this might have been the worst week of tennis of my life. Granted, I played some good people, but uh, it didn't seem to come together very well. In fact, I had something happen to me that only tennis players will understand. This is what is called um, the bagel. Anybody understand the bagel? What does this look like? Zero. So I took a six zero from somebody. Uh, the bagel. I haven't eaten the bagel in some time. But lo and behold, I'm getting old and decrepit. And they are getting younger and faster and stronger. So I had to submit. You know, I hate to lose, truth be told. I hate to submit. In fact, athletics, you hate to submit. No, if you guys watch MMA or not, I do every night before I go to bed, it calms me. <laughs> but uh, they have this thing called when you tap out, you know, you're done, I submit, it's over. We hate to submit in sports. But you know, submission is something that is derided in the corporate world, isn't it? To go and give up to your competition, to stop running, to basically throw up your hands and say, no more. Submission is something that is frowned upon in the relational world, isn't it? Think about marriages, all the failed marriages from people that say, I refuse to be submissive to you. I refuse to submit to you. If you come my way, if you acknowledge my leadership, then fine, but otherwise. All of the fracture of relationships in the world, whether it be friendships, whether it be marriages, sisters and brothers that don't talk together, deal with this issue of submission. Well, I have a submissive heart. But Christianity is different than all of these other spheres of life. In Christianity, we see that submission is a beautiful thing. In fact, we look at the attitude of Christ Jesus, we see one who was God himself, who humbled himself and became obedient to death, succumbing to death at the hands of the very people that he created and sustains. This attitude of Jesus Christ, this servant's attitude, permeated the early church. And it was shown in the service of Paul, giving up his life for the churches. And here it's shown the life of Timothy and Epaphroditus, who cultivated a mind of submission. And so we need to examine what does it mean to have a submissive life, to live in the way as these men. So we're going to look at three specific examples. Number one, Timothy. Number two, Epaphroditus. And finally, number three, Paul. And each, in each one of these three, we see a specific message. That you will know how much you have surrendered your life to Christ by your willingness to surrender your life for others. Well, let's look at number one, Timothy. Philippians 2.19 says, Paul speaking to the Philippians church, the church of Philippi. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I may be cheered by news of you. See, Paul planted that church at Philippi. He lived and died. In fact, he was imprisoned there. And he stuck around and he loved people and he led people to Christ. And from that, a church began to grow. And so Paul has a special relationship with them. And because he is in prison, most likely in Rome, he is wondering how they are doing. And so he has to send a messenger. He wants to tell them how he is doing to encourage them, and he wants to hear how they are doing. 
But the problem is, Paul can't go. So who does he send to send this message of love, to hear this message? He sends Timothy. Why Timothy? Well, look at verse 20. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Notice this word genuinely. No information we can tell that Timothy has ever been to Philippi. We don't have any information that he even has a relationship with any of these people. No vested interests. And yet, he will be genuinely concerned for their welfare. Their welfare, their well-being. Timothy has a heart that wants to know and wants to care for these people. And this is why Paul says, I have no one like him. You look at the Greek, it literally means I have no one who is equal in soul, who is kindred in spirit, who thinks and feels the same way I do as Timothy does. Why is Timothy so genuine? Somewhere along the way, Timothy has cultivated a servant's mind, which has led to a servant's heart. So Paul says, I have no one like him, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. See, the other reason he sends Timothy is because no one else will go. They all seek their own interests. They're all busy. Yeah, they're Christians, but you know, things are going on. They can't tear themselves away because they have their own interests to deal with. For they all seek their own interests, unlike Timothy, who seeks those of Christ Jesus. And what are Christ's interests? Christ cares about people. He does. He cares about people. He cares about His church. He cares about you. Many of us think, well, I shouldn't really pray anything big. God's busy running the universe. He doesn't have time for me. But God demonstrates His own love in us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so God wants to communicate His love to you and you and me, that He's interested in you. And the way that He does that all too often is through people. The way that I experience Christ's love all the time is through people moving into my life, showing genuine concern in which I see the face of Christ in their life. Timothy has changed his interests. It's not so long as I'm happy. It's as long as God is happy, I am happy. Now the question is, how did Timothy get this way? didn't snap his fingers. Verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the Father, he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy has proven himself. A little background on Paul and Timothy. When Paul was on his first missionary journey in a region of Greece called Lystra and Derby, he met Timothy. Timothy's parent, uh, mother was a Christian, Lois, and his grandmother, Eunice. So if you wonder where the name Eunice came from, now you know, okay? You used to make fun of the word Eunice, now you know, okay? Nobody's liking that joke, I'll continue. <laughs> okay, so Eunice and Lois, and it appears that through the ministry of Paul that Timothy came to faith. And there's this special relationship between them. I don't know if you ever have a sort of special bond right off the bat that you kind of get them and they get you. But Paul does something. He leaves him there at the church. He doesn't bring him along right away. 
because he knows that Timothy has to learn to have a submissive mind. See, naturally, we're not servants. Naturally, we want to be served. We don't want to serve. It's not in our fallen nature. It's a process that is learned as we submit ourselves to the interests of others in little situations. And so Timothy learned to submit to the people at the church at Lystra, not being first, but being last. And apparently, he was uh, did a good job because we see that he was well spoken. When Paul came back on his second ministry journey, he was well spoken of by the brothers in Lystra. They spoke well about him. And so Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him as his special uh, disciple, protege. It was because they spoke well of him. Paul enlisted him. And he entrusted him. And as a son with a father, Timothy served Paul with the gospel. See, Paul, Timothy served the church before. And then he served Paul during. And then what's amazing is afterwards... Paul chose Timothy to be his successor, to stand in the footsteps of Paul and to carry on his ministry, not because of his greatness, but because of his submissiveness. The point I'm trying to make with you is this, that we have to start somewhere in living submissive lives. That isn't something that just naturally happens. It's not our nature we happen to be this way. Rather, we cultivate it small acts of putting ourselves second and putting other people first. Some people allow this life of Christ to grow up in them and other people choke it because they're too interested in their own interests. I read a story that was very disturbing with me. Uh, it's a story, in fact I'll do it here, it's from the top, it's from the New York Post. Stab hero dies as more than 20 people stroll past him. A heroic homeless man, stabbed after saving a Queens woman from a knife-building attacker, lay dying in a pool of blood for more than an hour as nearly 25 in people indifferently strolled past him. Video shows an unidentified woman standing about 5'3", walking down 14th Street, and as she walks under a protective scaffolding, a man is following her. He's 5'6", and as the man accosts the woman under the scaffolding, Hugo Alfred Tail walks toward them. The video shows a scuffle, but most of the action is out of the field of vision. Within seconds, the killer is seen on the video running out from the scaffolding. And Hugo runs after him, but falls almost immediately face down on the sidewalk. Within a minute or two, of the first of a long series of people began walking by Tail without coming to his aid. In the wake of the bloodshed, people came out of the building and chillingly took a cell phone photo of the victim before leaving. In several instances, pairs of people balked at Tail without doing anything. Later, another man stopped, leaned over, and vigorously shook Tail after lifting the victim's head and body to reveal a pool of blood and also walked off. Finally, more than an hour and 20 minutes after the victim collapsed, did firefighters finally arrive and discover that Tail, age 31, was dead. There's something disquieting about there, isn't it? People walking along, not wanting to be entangled in the affairs of someone else, even as they're dying on the side of the road. And yet this homeless man, who has nothing or next to nothing, sees the need and jumps in, 
even at the cost of his life. I don't know if he was a believer in Christ. I don't know anything about him at all. But I do know everyone looks out for their own interests. But Timothy proved himself day after day by making God's interests his interests. We all have a role, my friends. We are in some way or shape the homeless man, beggars who happen to know where the bread is. We have a responsibility to cheer one another up. We get discouraged. We get lonely. We wonder if anyone cares or knows what situation we're in. And so, like the homeless man, like Timothy, we must change our agenda. We must change the focus of our life from ourselves being subsumed to being subsumed with Christ's interests. So we must free up our calendar, our agenda. Is there any space in yours when you see a need or a concern? See, if you look to love, you will find people to love. But if you don't, you won't see anybody. We must change our agenda, but we must also change your interests. Do you know that we actually have an interest checklist? I don't know how well you've written it down, but there's an interest checklist that we all have running in the back of our brain. You know, it may go something like this for you. You know, it's prioritized. I've got my family, then I got my friends, and then I got my job, I got my hobbies, and then I've got God. Okay, you clearly got God somewhere in this list. You came here, uh, unless you thought this was a bagel shop and wandered in. So we hear this passage and we think to ourselves, I need to change my priorities. That's what Paul was saying. I need to move God to the top of my list. And I need to move things under Him. But God is my first interest. And then I have this and this and this and this. But that's not what God is saying at all. What it's saying is, I don't want to be first on your checklist. I want to be your checklist. Everything in your life is subsumed under me. That my interests for your family become preeminent over your interests. That my interest for your job becomes preeminent over your interests. God is not supposed to be a slice of the pie, even the biggest part of the pie. He's the pie. So when we make a decision to look for God's interest, He begins to mold and shape every aspect of our life. And so change your agenda, change your interest, and finally change your ambition. You know, there is such thing as a godly ambition. Timothy's ambition was to be spoken well of. He didn't aim for that per se, but he wanted people to know that he was about Christ's business. And so the question is, when people speak of you and your faith and your service and submission, do they speak well about you? It starts when you begin to put Christ's interest ahead of your own. We all have to start somewhere. Why don't you start today? Well, that's Timothy for you. That brings me to my second point, my second person, Epaphroditus. So Timothy, Paul is holding on to for just a little bit longer. But we see in verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your minister and minister to my need. Okay, Epaphroditus originally came from the church at Philippi. The Philippians were one of the only churches 
that says, we want to help your ministry. We want to help care for you because we know you're running around, you're getting in danger, and so we're for you, Paul, whatever happens to you. And so Paul fell into trouble here for the gospel. He's imprisoned. And the Philippians uh, at, at Philippi send to them Epaphroditus, the messenger and minister for Paul's needs. See, when you were in prison or house arrest or whatever it was, it wasn't like they were bringing you meals. You didn't have any friends to take care of you. Oh, well. And so Epaphroditus essentially was keeping Paul alive. And so Paul has a dear heart for Epaphroditus. He calls him his brother, his fellow worker, his fellow soldier even. Epaphroditus is all in, so to speak, as Paul is all in. And Paul says, I thought it necessary to send you back, my fellow soldier, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard he was ill. Epaphroditus misses his friends and his family. In fact, he's distressed because he thinks they're distressed about him. Isn't that interesting? His compassion and love for them is so much that he wants to let them know he's okay so they will not be distressed. Indeed, Paul says, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. Not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Why was Epaphroditus ill? Verse 30 tells us, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to him. See, Epaphroditus was chosen. He was one, the Philippians said, this man can accomplish what we want him to. He has proven his worth. We will send him. And so Epaphroditus committed himself to his charge. He risked everything, his life, and it cost him, nearly cost him his life. And so Paul said, I am the more eager to send him, that you may rejoice again, and that I may be less anxious. And so Epaphroditus' service is finished, and the spiritual soldier gets to go home. You see, Timothy submitted his interests to God, and Epaphroditus submitted his life. It's interesting when you see these two normal guys that many of us never talk about. Their similarities to Jesus. Timothy, like Jesus, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, being a servant. And as Epaphroditus, Jesus became obedient, not near to death, but to death on the cross, willing to give his life. And as these men were like sons to Paul, so Jesus, as a son to his heavenly Father, gave up everything for him. And as these two men committed their life to Christ, the Spirit of Christ living in them was changing them as they chose to put their mind on Jesus Christ. I don't know if you saw the article in the pilot was just a couple days ago about the situation in the Navy uh, at the Aberdeen Proving Grounds where two divers died. And slowly they figured out what happened. There was Petty Officer 2nd Class Ryan Harris and Petty Officer 1st Class James Rayner. They were conducting a routine training mission and some of their equipment malfunctioned. And instead of aborting the mission, they went ahead to change to scuba gear, some other type of gear. And it was a very, very poor choice. In fact, the, whoever was the head, Master Chief, was court-martialed for it. 
But Radar and Terrace were both experienced divers, went ahead and went down. And as they went down, it became, uh, visibility became poor and poor. The temperature dropped to 40 degrees. And so they went down, and as they reached the bottom, they were running out of air. In fact, the line pool said it's time to go up. And that's when we discovered, they discovered that Rainer's a breathing apparatus had somehow gotten caught, caught in, the, uh, in the stuff down at the bottom. They used this for training. So there were wires and other stuff, and he got tangled in it. And somehow this tangle was so bad that he couldn't free himself easily. So Harris, who was down there while their air was running out, tried to help. He wrapped some of the line connecting him to Rainer, and he tried to pull, but he could not pull him up. And their air was running down. And finally, they didn't make it to the top. So what did they discover? Harris could have cut the line. He could have pulled the knife out. He could have ejected. There was no way it would seem that he was going to be able to uh, uh, rescue Rainer, but he didn't. In fact, neither men pulled their knives. It appears that what happened was when Harris realized that he couldn't free Rainer, he simply tried until the end, and they both died together. Harris was committed to Rainer. They were on a lifeline together. And Harris took his responsibility serious, all the way to the end if necessary, risking his life to try to save the life of another. And it cost him, in this case, it cost him his life. They're both heroes commanded by the United States for their service. See, because Christ laid down His life for us, we must bring the same seriousness and sincerity to laying down our lives for one another. Because you will know how much you have surrendered your life to Christ by your willingness to surrender your life to others. So count the cost, my brothers and sisters. 1 John 3.16 says this, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, and we should lay down our life for our brothers. If we are to follow Christ, we must follow in His footsteps, risking and submitting not only our interests, but our lives. We have a ledger of sacrifice that we all keep. If we have a list, we also have a ledger. And basically it has whatever these interests are and how much we're willing to pay for them what we have, and how much we're willing to suffer for it. I can tell you what's most important in your life by how much you're willing to suffer for it. And so there is this matrix of suffering. But what God says, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your matrix of suffering is to be guided by me, my interests, my example. There are things that have to move up in your life that are to death that are worth dying on. Because your life now is not only for yourself, but for those around you. We must count the cost. We must also wade into people's suffering. Very easy to walk by people on the street, isn't it? I'm just sort of saying to homeless folks. In fact, I talked with Dallas Stamper with Pin Ministries. He's like, give the money to me. Okay, because many of those folks, almost all of them, are either playing you, or they're alcoholics. You know, I never give money to any of them. I'll buy them food. I'll buy, I'll engage in their life. 
I'll tell them about the gospel. But we give money to pin. Redeemer Sports, pin ministries. But people's sufferings are so much more than that. Very, very rarely does somebody starve in this country. They suffer when no one's there to visit them. When they feel that no one loves them. When they're mentally ill. When they're afraid and they say, don't leave me. As this diver stayed for his other person. As Christ stayed for us. As Epaphroditus stayed for Paul, so we must stay for one another. We must wade into people's sufferings, and we must not let go. Epaphroditus was on an assignment. So what's yours? God has sent you to someone. Someone that He wants you to be faithful to. You're proven enough that God said, I will work through you. Don't let go. Maybe it's your kids. They need you. Don't let go. Don't give up on me. Maybe it's your wife or your spouse. I'm with you to the end. If we're going down, we're going down together. Maybe it's this church. Maybe instead of just coming in, being a part of the church, you're willing to get alongside people and lock arms and say, I'm going to plant my flag on this hill called Redeemer Presbyterian Church. I don't know who it is. But pray to God. Put His interests first. Cultivate a mind of submission. And God will guide you. I don't know if I can promise you a happy life. But I sure can promise you a joyful life. Which is so much better. That brings me to my final point. Paul. Paul who was in prison... Paul who was alone. Paul who had Epaphroditus sent to him. Could have been easy for Paul to say, don't go, don't leave me here. Could have been easy for him to say, I'll never leave Timothy. He's my son. I'll never let him go. And yet Paul's willingness to leave these men, to send them, was ultimately his trust that Jesus would never leave me or forsake me. And that as I give away my life, I will find it. Was this not the picture of our Heavenly Father who sent His Son? He gave them that they would reject Him, crucify Him, that He would ultimately bring life. You know, I've gotten the chance to reflect on my son Mark and his passing. It seems like yesterday. And in some ways it seems like an eternity. You know, I didn't want to let him go. I, like anyone else, asked the questions, what? Why did you take him? Why not somebody else? I couldn't give him up. But then it hits me that my Heavenly Father was in the same shoes as mine. He said, I will give my son for you because I love you so much. And if you trust me, I will work it out. See, you and I are in the same boat. There are things that are precious to us. Things that are beautiful to us. Things that got a hold on us that are bad and things that have a hold on us that are good. But when you make a decision to move your interest to Christ, to move your life to His, to say, I trust you, I trust that you've got it, that I know ultimately I will be restored to you, whatever happens, that's when you experience joy. 
because you trade your life in for his. There's very few of these people in the world. Many Christians. Very few submitted ones. But I promise you that if you cultivate a mind of submission, if you submit your interest to Christ, if you submit your life to His, if you submit your most precious things to your Heavenly Father, you will experience in new ways the submissive life of Christ who died for you. You will know how much you surrendered your life to Christ by your willingness to surrender your life for others. That's my prayer for you and me. Let's pray. How great is the love that God has cast upon us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Is there any greater gift, Father, than your Son? The very one who is like you, the very one we love to send him for us. Lord, thank you, Jesus, that you gave your life, that we might have life. And so, Lord, the least we can do is to give all of our heart and our lives and submit to you by submitting to one another. Cultivate in us a mind and a heart of submission. Let us live like you lived toward one another. Let us have a godly ambition to lay down our life and meet us with the joy of the Holy Spirit as you manifest yourself to us in new ways that we could never understand until we submitted ourselves to one another. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.